Hey, welcome to the podcast. My name is Alan Carter, and coming up, looking for the VOCs, the vaccine of concern right here in Toronto, plus concerns from high school teachers about the process of going back to in-class learning, and Wendy Gillis from the Toronto Star about Clearview AI and whether or not it has violated your rights. Let's get to it. Hold on. Where are you going? Where are you off to? Just hold on. I got a question. I have a question. Actually, it's more of a concern. You might say it's a variant of concern. I have a variant of concern. I don't actually have a variant of concern because that would be worrying. It's all the VOCs today and these days. That's all we're talking about, the variants of concern. If we're not freaking out about whether or not we're going to get the vaccine... We're really freaking out about what's going on with these variants of concern. What does that mean for the efficacy of the vaccine? What does it mean for ending this pandemic? And by the way, what do we call these things anyway? The B117, the UK, the Brazilian, the Californian. Are you interested what the guidance is here for us at Global News? You ever wonder what what, what we discuss? Well, I actually have an email. This is my inbox. This is from Global News HQ, way up the food chain, way above my pay grade. Here comes the guidance on how to deal with this with the namings of the VOCs, the variants of concern. What do we say? How do we we deal with this? Because remember, we we don't call it the the Wuhan virus. We know that that is not acceptable. You can't call it the China virus. You can't do that. It's not acceptable. So if that's not acceptable, then how is it acceptable to say the UK variant or the South African or the Brazilian? How does that make sense? So here is the official word from the Global News Headquarters for us broadcast types. This is the guidance for the, uh, as we refer to them around here, lips and hair. That's what I am, the lips and hair. The B, this is a quote here from the email. The B117 variant on first mention use, quote, the B11 variant first found in the UK Subsequent references can be just simply UK variants. So you see, the first time I say it, I'm going to have to say B117, first found in the UK. So I did that. Good. Check. Good. Can still work here. What else does this say? The N501Y.V2 variant. Please do not say the periods. Oh, okay. Well, I've screwed that up. On first mention, use... The N501YV2 variant first found in South Africa. Well, that rolls off the tongue. Subsequent mentions can be just simply the South African variant. So that's, give you a little bit of a look inside how we deal with this on the news now. We talk about it because there's really no consensus worldwide. I mean, the WHO says we shouldn't be putting names, country names, next to these variants. But that is that is perhaps just... A separate issue from what is really worrying, which is, are we actually doing the kind of testing to be able to figure out how prevalent any of these variants, whatever we call them, how prevalent are they here? We know, for example, the B117 is here. And we know it is likely spreading in the community because we've got a number of cases that have not been linked to travel. Now, here in Toronto, scientists have been turning their focus to understanding these VOCs. 
and technology developed at the Lunenfeld Tannenbaum Research Institute, which is part of the Sinai Health System in Toronto. It wasn't really intended originally for COVID-19, but senior investigators uh, at the, the Research Institute realized it could be pivoted to detect these variants. Here is Jeff Rana, a senior investigator at the Research Institute. So it's kind of like if you're reading Lord of the Rings and you want to find out what happened, what did Frodo do with the ring? Uh, you just focus on the one chapter where Frodo throws the ring into the fire. That is Jeff Rana, and I am here all day. All day I am here for a Lord of the Rings reference when it comes to COVID-19. So go to the last chapter, just figure out what happens with Frodo and the ring. And this exactly was the same process that was used, not Frodo and the ring, but the process at this Technology Research Institute. This process was used to detect the first positive case of the South African variant this week. And to talk to me more about this, I am pleased to welcome to the program Brad Walters, who is Executive Vice President of Science and Research at the University Health Network. Welcome, Brad. Hi, nice to be here. Tell me about the process here, if you can explain it to a non-scientific crowd. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's really straightforward. What we're trying to do is, is to use a, a, you know, a new technology that was developed by Jeff's group that we think is kind of like a Goldilocks technology because it can give you the information you need, it can identify the variants, and it can do it fast and, 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 and uh, in a high-throughput way so that you can get an answer back fast enough to public health so that they can do something about it. How widespread is this technology in Ontario right now, or is it only being used at this research institute? Well, it really is only being used here. It was developed uh, just in the last year, um, initially developed, you know, to diagnose and, and look for COVID. But because it uses next generation sequencing technology, it, it actually gives you the sequence of the, of the virus. And therefore, you, you can track, you know, if it's one of the, one of the variants of concern that we're all worried about. Uh, speaking of the VOCs, I, I did mention that this was the process that identified B117. Give uh, me up to date. Have we actually conclusively identified N501YV2? Well, so what has happened uh, here in you know Ontario is obviously we've we've identified many many cases of the of the 117, uh, what's often colloquially known as the UK variant, the one that has taken off and become predominant in the UK and, and some other countries as well. Uh, that variant is in Ontario as well. There are, there are lots of cases that have been identified, but it's important to realize that we're not systematically testing positive samples. So the ones that we have found are, are ones where there's been a, you know, a, a suspected that, you know, a case where you, you might expect that it might be there was found in Roberta Place, if massive numbers of, of infections there. Uh, and so on. So, you know, we really don't know how prevalent it is, but we know it's here, we know it's spreading in the community, and we know it's increasing. And this is why that there's such an urgent need, you know, to up our game and be able to go back in and, and you know, what, what, what we're trying to do is to provide a, a solution where you can go back and test every positive sample every day. Uh, I speak. We did find, you know, in, in, as as they were working up the technology, we've been testing the positive samples that have been identified at the labs here at Sinai and UHN. Um, and in one of those tests last week, actually two weeks ago now, that's where we did find the the B one three five one, the variant that was first discovered in 
South Africa, and, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a particular concern because it has not only increased transmissibility, um, but also some concern that it can provide resistance against immunity for those people who've already been infected by COVID or, or who have received the vaccine. Is, is that the same with the what's colloquially known, and I don't know the number, of the Brazilian variant and the, the concern... Right. The, yeah, the, both the Brazilian variant and the South African variant um, contain, uh, they share two common mutations. One at what's called position 501. That's the one also shared with the, the, the common one in the UK that has clearly increased transmission. But the Brazilian and the South African uh, dominant ones have a second mutation at position 484. And that's the one everyone's worried about in terms of you know, creating resistance to vaccine immunity and, and other uh, previous immunity. I'm speaking with Brad Waters, who is the Executive Vice President of Science and Research at the University Health Network. And I take from your Twitter, uh, Brad, this morning, uh, talking about the data anomalies. And once again, we don't have really uh, any clear idea what the daily case numbers are, because we've had data troubles all week. And you write that the reporting mess this week is unacceptable, and the province is making decisions on schools, and parents are making on de- making decisions on children without reasonable data. Could you explain more what what you mean there? Well, it's just you know there's been a transition from in the Toronto Public Health moving to the provincial system, and there's been reporting anomalies and delays and and back and forth, and so we don't have a good picture on what's happening this week. And it's a pretty important week because there are decisions being made about schools and and others. You know, the hospitals have to make decisions around capacity and and changing surge capacity. And we're at a a point where we know the variants are in the community. They are starting to take hold. Um, And what we're all really worried about is that, you know, the the overall decrease in case numbers that we're seeing uh, is foreshadowing the emergence uh, of what could be a third wave if these variants really take off. So it's really important that we get good, accurate data on a daily basis, and and we really need that to be able to plan uh, and and respond accordingly, whether you're, you know, a hospital system or whether you're a family at home. Brad, some might take away from what you've been saying about testing uh, for variants uh, and for the, the data to be criticisms of the Ford government. And I want to play this for you. This is the head of the Canadian Medical Association, Ann Collins, on this radio station earlier today, talking about physicians and doctors and the Ford government's handling of the pandemic. Our message here really is around the fear that we have that physicians who speak to about and speak up about public health issues of concern, we don't want them to feel muzzled. We have heard anecdotally of instances where physicians are giving second thoughts to maybe providing opinion or speaking publicly about about these issues. That's not good for good policy and good public decision making. That is Ann Collins of the Canadian Medical Association on the line. Brad Walters from UHN. Your reaction to what you heard? Well, you know, it's it's obviously a very um, interesting year. Uh, we've we've seen an opportunity with social media platforms, um, with pre-publication platforms, that the the uh, the ability to share information, to weigh in on information, um, is different than it ever has been in the past. So I think that's very welcome. 
Um, you know, the, the ability of scientists all around the country and really all around the world to weigh in with their ideas and their opinions. Uh, and they're able to do so through these platforms. So, I, you know, I think that's welcome. I think most of it is getting heard, you know, um, and I think it, the the ability to, to move that information quickly and to get information out is, is a, you know, is really a kind of a situation that we've never, never been faced with in the past. And it, it but is there fear on the part of, of people, of doctors that work for you, that, that work in the University Health Network, to speak out, that they fear that they will uh, somehow run into either pushback from the Premier's office or being attacked on Twitter? Well, you know, anybody who posts on Twitter, I think, is worried about being attacked. <laughs> That's a good point. Attention, including me. Um, <laughs> But you know, I, I, I you know, I, we, we, I haven't heard that really, in, 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 you know, to a great extent at UHN. I know there have been a couple of instances where um, there have been on Twitter, and I'm following those too. Um, but many of those individuals are are really, um, you know, groups that are are having a lot of influence in a, in a positive way on the way we're responding. So um, it's 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 certainly not a, uh, we, you know, we practice academic freedom. We we, we want our scientists to. To reach out and our clinicians to reach out and offer their opinions and solutions and and to weigh all of that accordingly. Let's just, Brad, bring it back to the variant of concern, back to those VOCs and what your advice would be to Dr. Williams and to Doug Ford about what this province needs to do in terms of tackling the spread of these VOCs. Yeah, it's twofold. One is we need to identify them. So we need to systematically put in place a screening approach that we can rapidly identify which of the positive cases are variants. Um, and then we need to uh, closely integrate that with a public health response that so we can do the tracking and tracing necessary to reach out to anyone that may have been exposed to those and to try and mitigate their spread. You know, we're, we're, we're in a race with the vaccines and, and these variants, and I, we need to do everything in our power, you know, which are primarily public health measures um, to try and identify and slow the spread of these new variants. Brad, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. Thank you. That is Brad Waters, who is Executive Vice President of Science and Research at the University Health Network. The big news in the province of Ontario for anybody who's got a kid in the system or who is a teacher is, of course, that kids in the majority of the province, the majority of the public health units, not the majority of the population, but the majority of the public health units will all go back on Monday. Uh, those who are not already back, so your Haltons and your Durhams and your Hamiltons, those kids all go back on Monday. And as for Toronto, Peel, and York, we all go back, uh, the kids go back on the Tuesday which is the day after Family Day, and all of that is very exciting. But if you were with us in our last segment, there's a lot of concerns about where the data is right now. We're not really seeing any kind of good data because of all these data anomalies and, and moves from data from Toronto Public Health to the Central Table and all the rest. We don't really have a sense of where our numbers are right now, and that that's raising a lot of concern about the safety. And also there's questions about what happens next, like, for example, March break. Do you have questions about March break, about spring break, about whether the kids will be off? Well, of course, parents have questions, and teachers have questions, and students certainly have questions. And the Minister of Education was on Stafford this morning on this radio show and had this to say. As of today, are you still planning to have a March break in the education ministry? 
uh, I know you want a yes, no. Uh, uh, I'd say uh, give me uh, give me the week to come back on the show to confirm what the medical community tells me. All I'll say is um, if it's going to help by uh, rescheduling it, if it's going to help uh, reduce transmission and protect families, if that's the advice of the medical community, I'm going to follow that advice. That is the Minister of Education with a kind of everything's on the table answer to that, which is not really an answer, but it doesn't take into account things like collective agreements with unions about, you know, how the actual school year breaks down. Like, you know, people start talking about, well, wait, wait, we'll just we'll just have the kids going to school in, in July and August. That's what we'll do. And like, well, it's not quite that easy. You just can't unilaterally say that kind of thing, but nevertheless, we're still waiting for some kind of clarity on March break. But in the meantime, for those that work in the education system, they are grappling now with some very real concerns. As We're looking at the variant, and we're looking at other things, and whether or not does the province really have the safety in place to be able to protect teachers and to protect those that go into schools, not to mention to protect the kids. My next guest is a high school teacher in the GTA. Ronak Chowdhury joins me now. And Ronak, what did you take away from the announcement that you heard from the province yesterday when you heard from Stephen Lecce? What was your reaction? So, good afternoon. Good afternoon to everyone. Um, my my takeaway is it was a lot of. It seems to be a lot of uh, like seesawing. Um, I know that you know they're saying, hey. We're going to open up schools in the GTAs. Um, the boards in the GTA are going to open up a little bit later than the rest of the province. And the real change, the only change that they're coming up with is that younger kids have to wear masks. So there hasn't been an increase in the levels of support. There hasn't been a conversation about reducing class size. There hasn't been any conversation that I've seen in the media at all about, you know, ventilation systems and, um, you know, improving air quality. And we're in the middle of winter. Uh, all of our numbers, COVID numbers, are showing that, you know, it's, it's community transmission. Uh, there hasn't been a conversation about, you know, paid sick days for parents when they get ill or their children get ill. And so, big surprise, everyone stay home except for the kids and teachers. And that and that's a problem. And, and because of all of the things that you listed, that doesn't give you any confidence that there is increased safety within the classroom for you to go back. Absolutely not. And, you know, here's the thing. It's, it's, it's a balance between physical health and mental health. You know, teachers want to be in the classroom. Teachers want to teach our students. But we also want to be safe, and we want our kids and their families to be safe. And so, you know, to, to say that, you know, everybody go back, and yet, you know, there's been nothing put into place above and beyond except for, I think, he announced yesterday um, children between grades 1 and 3 now have to wear masks all day as well. Like yeah, so the younger kids have to wear masks, and they have to all wear masks out in the yeah. playground. But my favorite part of the uh, the new protocols were that you know kids were not allowed to congregate in the playground. Um, and I'm just wondering who's enforcing that. Are you going to be out there pulling kids apart so they're six feet apart? Well, I mean, here's the thing: in high school, we don't do recess, so I, I can't speak to that too much. But I will say, I mean, I've seen my my colleagues in the elementary division, and they've done a pretty good job of, you know, keeping the cohorts separate from each other and and kind of putting in like we've seen um, schoolyards where you know they put in you know circles and areas where kids can individually play. It, it still doesn't it still doesn't mean that we're going to have reduced numbers of COVID cases in schools. It still doesn't mean that kids aren't going to be safe because we're not we're not changing where the transmission is happening. It's not in the yard. 
the transmission is going to happen inside the buildings, inside the, you know, the homes, inside the elevators, inside the school buses. That's where the transmission is happening, and nothing's been changed with regards to that. I'm speaking with Rona Chaudhry, who's a high school teacher in the uh, GTA. Uh, the, the province has announced more money for HVAC systems. Uh, you know, I know that's slow to be rolling out, and you likely don't see it in your school. Uh, but they have also announced that they are going to deploy all of these rapid tests. Now, we don't know exactly how they're going to be deployed, but does, do those, does the rapid testing regimen give you uh, any peace of mind, any security? I'm going to say that rapid testing, yes. I think that when we have um, data, and data is always going to help us, but I think the rapid tests are just going to confirm what people already know. You know, so for example, before the winter break, we knew in the Thorncliffe neighborhood, you know, in Thorncliffe Park um, Elementary School, there was, you know, large numbers of kids that, that tested positive and then, you know, staff as well. Big surprise, you know, neighborhood full of apartment buildings, um, you know, many of the parents are essential workers. Many of the families are, you know, have to go to work because they don't get the paid sick days. And so they have to send the kids to school. You know, all of this is, is it, it's a domino effect. And so really, yes, you know, rapid testing, it's great. But it's only like, to me, it's just confirmation. Like, we're just confirming what we already know. How are you going to handle the Tuesday after Family Day? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm lucky that I am doing virtual. And so I'm not coming back into buildings per se myself. Um, but this doesn't mean that I'm not worried for my, you know, my students. I'm not worried for their families. I'm not worried for my colleagues. You know, for me, I'm always hopeful. And, you know, the weather will be getting warmer. And, you know, we are having the rollout of vaccinations. And I hope that more and more people, you know, opt to vaccine, you know, get the vaccination. But we also know there's been some challenges with regards to getting that out to our communities. I, I mean, really, I'm hoping it doesn't get worse. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I want to, I want to remain positive. Ronak, thank you very much. I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story today. Thank you for having me. This is Ronak Chaudhry, who's a high school teacher in the GTA. Quote, this is clearly unacceptable. Not according to Canada's privacy commissioner. The privacy watchdog says the U.S. firm Clearview AI, or Clearview and its AI facial recognition technology, resulted in mass surveillance of Canadians and violated federal and provincial laws that govern personal information. In that report on Wednesday, the privacy commissioner said the New York-based company scraped billions of images of people from across the Internet And that was a clear violation of Canadians' privacy rights. The technology by Clearview allows for the collection of huge numbers of images from a number of different sources that are easily open and you can see them, you can just Google them. Those sources are then all collected into this data bank and it can help police forces, financial institutions, other clients actually identify people. And this report from the Privacy Commissioner said Clearview AI's technology allowed law enforcement and commercial organizations to match photographs of unknown people against the data bank and that that was not acceptable. Now, we know that Clearview AI has been used by the RCMP. How's it being used in Toronto? 
Wendy Gillis is the Toronto Star crime reporter and has covered this issue in the past. Welcome, Wendy. Thanks so much for having me. What do we know about whether or not the Toronto police are still using Clearview AI? So we know that they are, they're not using Clearview AI. And um, in the course of our reporting, generally we found that um, police services... It's actually very hard to believe, Alan, but many of them didn't know that their officers were using it. And that's because plenty of individual investigators had just kind of like found out about this technology and decided to test it and signed up for free trial. So initially, um, Toronto police, uh, they said that they actually hadn't known, the chief hadn't known that officers were using this technology. And so as soon as he found out, um, ordered uh, officers to cease using it. And as I understand it now, they have actually instituted a new sort of protocol where officers are told they cannot try any kind of new technology without the knowledge of um, the chief information officer, which, you know, you would hope that that's something that generally officers would have known. But I think the case of Clearview AI exposed just how many officers just kind of took it upon themselves to test out this new technology. Law enforcement loves this, this tool by and large. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think, One thing that we need to be really careful about is, um, you know, facial recognition technology, it it has a lot of promise. I don't think that the technology in and of itself needs to be, um, you know, known as evil necessarily. It's just I think what we've seen with Clearview AI and the vast advancement of facial recognition technology is that it has outpaced the regulation. And so, you know, it could be a really powerful tool for police investigators, not only to identify suspects. So, you know, if they have, if they have an image of someone that's captured on surveillance footage, which I can tell you is, you know, that happens all the time now. They don't know who that person is. They can run it through a facial recognition technology tool like Clearview AI, and hey, maybe they can identify this person. But in Canada, it was actually more so used. Well, actually, I don't know if it was more so used, but we do, we do know it was used fair amount in um, child uh, pornography investigations. So, you know, identifying victims, that's also, you know, a fairly noble cause. So I don't know that we should necessarily close off this technology and say it shouldn't be used. I think what we've seen here is that it has to be regulated. And, you know, what we know from Clearview AI and the privacy commissioner's view is that it certainly was not regulated in this case. And actually it was illegal. And, and here comes the the rub, really, here, Wendy, which is, you know, it's fine to say, well, wait, now you have violated the privacy rights of Canadians, but, you know, how does Canadian law apply in any way to Clearview AI? Mm, right, and I think that's what we've seen here, is that we have the privacy commissioners coming out with what was, frankly, a, a very harsh report. I mean, they didn't really mince words yesterday. You, you said it right at, at the top of this segment, you know, they, they said this is unacceptable. This was mass surveillance. This was illegal. But this is a case where they don't have enough power. We, the legislation isn't sufficient enough to lay even, even fines here. So what we saw yesterday was also an appeal for um, privacy legislation to be strengthened. Because um, otherwise, we will see other companies coming in and trying to do the same thing. Um, we did also learn yesterday, too, that um, privacy commissioners, both the federal and um, 
provincial counterparts are working right now on some guidelines for law enforcement because, as I said, this is a fast-moving tool and police services are adopting it. Um, and, and what's an interesting comparison is that Toronto Police was already testing facial recognition technology against uh, a photo um, database of um, of mugshots, so they were already testing this, but it was it was subject to a great amount of oversight. They were testing the tool, they were reporting to the Toronto Police Services Board. It was regulated, um, whereas this this was anything but. Speaking with Wendy Gillis, who is a reporter with the Toronto Star, any response from Clearview AI? Yeah, they actually uh, responded very quickly yesterday. Um, saying that, you know, they're basically digging in their heels. They're saying that they don't believe that what they were doing um, was illegal. They're, they're saying that they pulled out of Canada and, you know, they're no longer operating here. And they say that, you know, their interests as a business should be weighed against the privacy rights of Canadians and not necessarily ruled to be illegal, right? So, um, we know that the privacy commissioners asked for Clearview AI to remove images of Canadians that they currently have in their database because, you know, just because Clearview AI isn't operating in, in Canada anymore doesn't mean that the myriad other investigators and private companies around the world that are using this technology no longer have access, right? They have, they have access to all of the pictures that have been, you know, swept up in this dragnet of Clearview AI. And many of those millions, according to the commissioners, um, are Canadians. Although, of course, we have really no way of identifying which person is Canadian, right? So the commissioners have said, we would like you to delete the photos of images of Canadians. And it sounds like that's uh, a conversation that's still happening. And we heard the commissioners yesterday say that he wasn't very hopeful about that prospect. Wendy Gillis, a Toronto Star reporter. Thank you so much. Appreciate you being on the program today. That was my pleasure. That's so interesting. Yeah, to take all the Canadian images out, anybody with a goatee and a mullet, uh, out. Anybody uh, wearing a Roots bucket hat, remove that. Uh, that. Beyond that, I'm not sure how you would possibly do that kind of thing. All right. That's so interesting. I appreciate Wendy being on. Uh, all right. Time to gather around. Get, come on. Bring it in, folks. Bring it in. Because this is the most important thing that you're going to hear today. It has been, It has been a tough year so far, and this is what I want to tell you. This is the lean right in here. This is what I want you to do today. I want you to take a look in the mirror, and I want you to do this. I want you to look yourself right in the mirror. I want you to say something nice about yourself. I need you to love yourself today. And you know why? I need you to be strong for others by being strong for yourself. You need to put your oxygen mask on first, folks, before you can help somebody else. You know, we celebrate in our culture, what we do for others. Valentine's Day right around the corner. What are we going to do? We're all going to talk about what is it that we did for the people that we love. Did we buy them chocolates? Did we buy them flowers? What did we do? Well, the question I have for you is, what have you done for yourself? What have you done to tell yourself something positive? You know, mental health research in Canada says that 22% of surveyed Canadians reported that they'd been diagnosed with depression, another 20% saying they'd received an anxiety disorder diagnosis. And those are the specific diagnosis. 
Self-reported feelings of anxiety and depression were found to be at all-time highs. This stuff is serious. Help is out there. And you can go and you can find it, but it starts inside first. We don't like to do this. We don't like to say nice things about ourselves to ourselves. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't sit right. But I'm telling you, if you want to help somebody you love, you need to love yourself. Are you worried about your coworkers? According to Morneau Chappelle's monthly mental health index, 36% of Canadians have indicated that they're concerned about a fellow employee's mental well-being. How do you help those people? You be good to yourself. This is no kumbaya call. This is no gather round and hug it out. No soft focus, tinkling music, cucumber water, spa day escapism. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the hard truth that it's hard sometimes to say something positive when you look in the mirror. Today. Do it today. Stop for one moment and tell yourself how well you are doing. Because you're awesome. You got it. Love yourself. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget the Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.